Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Success Harbor Podcast with George Mazaros, where it's all about making success happen for you. Hi, everyone. This is George Mazaros with Success Harbor, and I have Justin Gilchrist with me. Justin is a serial entrepreneur. He started his first business over 10 years ago. One of Justin's more recent businesses is Centurica. Centurica helps people acquire internet-based businesses. Justin recently published a book called Digitally Wed, the Entrepreneur's Toolkit for Buying Profitable Websites. I'm very excited to have Justin on Success Harbor today. Welcome. Hey, George. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, Justin. Let's talk about your background a little bit, how you, you, know, how you got started in, in, uh, in business, uh, and when was it? I mean, I, I mentioned 2003. Was that, was that the uh, first time you started business? Yeah, that's about right. I mean, I think like most entrepreneurs, I've, you know, I've always kind of been in business from the age of, I think, probably eight or nine. I remember going to the library and, you know, so we had maybe 10 books in our, our business book section. It was a real small town. But I remember just growing up on this diet of 1980s American direct marketing. So we're talking about guys like, um, oh, I forgot his name, Robert Allen and who's that sort of big copywriter, um, Dan Kennedy. You know, and it, it was always a sort of fascination with business and a fascination with marketing. But the first, what I'd call serious business, was around 2003. Okay, and what was that business in 2003? So this business was a design and print company. Um, and it's something which I started whilst at university. I ended up dropping out of university to, to further this. And it was a company that ultimately bought format printing sort of to, to a mainstream audience. And are you, shall I explain what format printing is for the guys? Yeah, please do. So the idea is at the time, um, the way most things were printed were bespoke. So if you had a print job and you needed some flyers or leaflets for your business printed, you would have a print run just for your specific job, which meant you had to pay a lot of overhead costs. So setup costs, film, plates. The idea behind format printing was to standardize and almost commoditize print. So everything came in one of maybe three different stocks and one of five or six different sizes. So that would work for 80% of people. But those 80% of people would get much cheaper printing because ultimately your job would be placed alongside uh, 11 or 12 other jobs. And then that was just sort of cut down to create the individual jobs after. So it was an idea of just kind of aggregating lots of people who needed print and then taking advantage of the fact that I could have a print run much cheaper with everything together than individually. And that, that idea really took off. So now how did you figure this out? It was, um, I think like most uh, entrepreneurs who I know, I started off in club promotion. And I think this goes back to a lot of teenage guys. You know, you, you, you're trying to work out how am I going to get money? How am I going to get girls? Those are your two priorities when you're 15, 16 years old. So I think some people go down the DJ path and those of us without any talent go down the nightclub promotion path. And, you know, so having taken that route, there was just a lot of requirement for flyers. And this was at the time when, you know, nightclubs were booming, the economy was booming, a lot of people were going out. And this was kind of pre-social media and pre-internet. So it, it, flyers were definitely the, the sort of big opportunity to get the word out about various events. And then from being involved with printing and designing flyers, I just sort of, uh, I suppose I realized the opportunity from there and realized that it was a good opportunity to expand into not just flyers, but other general print for, 
for surrounding businesses. So you started in 2003, and how big did that business grow, and how long did it take to get there? Well, it grew, I mean, it was always a, a small business. Uh, for me at the time, it was a huge business. So we grew in about two years, we grew to around three quarters of a million in revenue. And at the time, that was the biggest business that I had ever owned. And it, it seemed like, you know, we were unstoppable and we we're going to conquer the world. Um, then within about a year, that revenue dropped down to about a quarter of a million. And this is in UK sterling, which is about I think it's one point six dollars to the pounds. Um, I mean, and why did that happen? So you, in two years you went to seven fifty, and then uh, a year later you went down to two fifty. What happened? I think I just screwed up. Uh, at the time, I would have rationalised it and I would have made up excuses because I was embarrassed. But the truth is, in hindsight. I think it was mostly due to my inexperience. It was poor management. I'd never really managed people. I'd never even worked a, what I'd call a proper job. So I had no idea how to handle this company that had grown organically, but grown relatively quickly. I was terrible at managing people. I was terrible at managing finances. And I think a lot of it was just down to taking my eye off the ball, losing focus and being experienced. So you were a, a victim of your own success in a way. Uh, <laughs> I'd rather say a victim of my own failure or my own arrogance. <laughs> rather, but yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, I think it happens a lot to uh, entrepreneurs that they have, they got kind of luckier than their own talent is in the beginning, and then it kind of catches up Absolutely. Uh, with them. And there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's just it's a good learning experience, and so so. So you went down, you made mistakes, uh, you, you know, you had, uh, give me a couple of examples that the mistakes that you made that are specific to your business. I think one of the hugest mistakes and one thing I swear by now is just forgetting to do the basics day in, day out. And a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs suffer from is this shiny object syndrome. So instantly I kind of, you know, became high off my own success and thought I was invincible and thought that anything I touched would turn to gold. So all of a sudden, every potential opportunity, I was thinking about expansion, I was thinking about moving into new territories, I was thinking about going into Europe, and you know, I was running away with how big this idea could be. But in doing that, I forgot to do the basics that got me there in the first place, which is every day going out and making sure that I'm selling, making sure that I'm bringing on new customers, new lifeblood for the business, because one of the fundamental reasons for that big drop in turnover was having far too much invested in just four or five really big clients who are then consequently lost to better competitors that came up and kind of copied the idea and did the same thing. So what happened uh, when the business went down to 250? Uh, what happened to this business? I think my confidence took a huge knock and rightfully so. You know, it was kind of um, it was like evolution. Nature corrected itself. Um, at that point, I just figured that if I carried on running this business, I'd either grow to resent it or I'd grow to lose it because I just felt like I'd lost control over what was going on. I didn't really understand why the things that happened had happened. So I put the business up for sale and fortunately found the sale. The amount I sold it for was nowhere what I would have had for a year earlier. But I, the way I saw it, I was grateful to have been able to sell it as opposed to be there with nothing left, you know, because I was too stubborn to accept that this was bigger than I could fix. So, you know, I sold the business, took the money, um, took a little bit of time off, but then sort of realized that one thing that I really enjoyed doing was buying online businesses and renovating online businesses, but also I really enjoyed... So, well, let's talk about that a little bit. So, uh, you sold the business, 
And and what were you doing during that time? Were you just uh, on vacation or were you actually actively thinking about ideas? I wish. Um, if I'm being honest, George, I think I had a mini nervous breakdown at the time. And I can look back on it and laugh about it now. But it, it was, you know, it was really serious at the time. I didn't realize what was happening, but I just got... I just got really down about the whole thing. I remember waking up at four o'clock in the morning every morning and just being awake, not being able to go back to sleep, but at the same time, not really knowing what to do, not really being motivated to do anything. And it was just a really, really difficult time, which is why. And this is, this is after you sold the business? It's a combination. It was sort of the period running up to the sale. But then after the sale, after the sale came a little bit of relief, but I still had no real purpose. You know, I kind of had the money and I had the money to do something, but I had no confidence in myself at this point. I felt like I'd let the team down who I was previously working with. Um, it, it was a bit of a, a bad time in that respect. So how long did that time last? Was it a matter of weeks, months, days? I'd say it was probably about four to five months. And, and what were you doing during this time? Um, I mean, were you, was it just that time had to pass or were you actively seeking for a solution? I think I was actually, I was reading a lot during that time. So I read quite a few books that massively helped. I know it's a cliche, but Tony Robbins, um, I think one of his books on limited power possibly, yeah, that, that was a, a real big help. I started to read a lot of self-development books and I started trying to understand a lot more about why the things that happened happened and just get a grip on what happened, I almost felt like I needed to understand things before I could move on because ultimately I was acting on fear. Um, I was scared that I would have success and lose it all again. And that was sort of preventing me from acting, which is it's a difficult thing to to admit. At the time, I, I wouldn't have been able to admit that. But looking back in hindsight, that's totally what I was doing. I was putting it off to try and make myself feel like I was ready. Were you thinking about just uh, getting a job somewhere at that point? Uh, no. Just to absolutely no, not at all. I, I just that's one thing I knew I didn't want to do, and I knew I'd always get back on back on the saddle. Um, web businesses were at the time a godsend for me because prior to that, we're talking around kind of 2005 at this point, 2005, 2006. So we're at the kind of advent where it was slightly easier to set up a web business than it was in 2003. And you didn't need all the formality to set up a business that you do with an offline one. So in 2003, if you're setting up an offline business, you're generally going to need premises and you're going to need, you know, sort of a lot of infrastructure before you can even get going. But this was a time when web was booming and it allowed me to test out ideas within days and get feedback. And ultimately, it didn't feel bad to be wrong. It meant I could be wrong a million times in a day and still correct course versus doing that with an offline business and staff where being wrong would potentially mean the failure of the business and incurring a lot of costs. So let's talk about when you, when you came out of that uh, low, low point, so to speak, those four or five months. Um, what, what actually caused, was there a single event or was it more of a process for you to come out of that, uh, that, uh, that low point? I think it's difficult because I can't specifically remember and I, I know myself well enough to know that I would have probably convinced myself that there was something that got me out of that and that may not have been the actual thing. Um, I think I was looking for a saviour. I think the problem was I was looking for one specific turnaround moment and you know when I hit that I'd be like right I'm ready. But I think the truth is it was just working out why the failure happened, just having a real kind of debrief and getting to grips with 
being honest with myself, being honest that I'm the one that screwed up. Because at the time, I think I was blaming on a lot of other things that I didn't control. But I suppose the minute I accepted that it was something that I could control, then I felt empowered to not let that happen again. And indirectly, I think that was the reason why I felt sort of ready to to carry on. And, you know, that really helped me snap out of it and realize that actually if the failure is me, I just need to change myself. It's not the economy. It's not, you know, things outside of my control that may or may not happen again. I am 100% in control of this screw up and I'm in control of not happening. So what what were some of those things that you, you needed to change about yourself and how did you change those things? I think a lot of it is just being completely honest. Um, there's a, I think it's a, a free PDF by Ray Dalio, who's a, a huge uh, hedge fund or sort of financial trader guy. And I, I'd recommend that everybody read it. I actually didn't know who he was quite embarrassingly before I started reading it. But in that, he kind of goes through his principles for life. What is it called? Uh, success principles. And it's uh, if you search for Bridgewater Capital, success principles, He's put it out there for free. This is a guy that's, you know, he's generated billions and billions in his time. He's possibly one of the best in the world today. And it's yes. the, the idea, a lot of the, the sort of concepts and ideas in this, which I've read recently, I wish I had at the time, because these are the things which I eventually came around to realizing the hard way. But a lot of it is things like one, never having assumptions and assuming that those assumptions are right. So always allow smarter people to completely challenge your assumptions and be quite open and honest about it. I had this weird complex that I think a lot of people who uh, start out self-employed do, where you believe that if you, you know, if you ask people to to question your decisions, if you ask people to challenge the decisions you've made, it sort of makes you look weak. So you just tend to pretend like you know it all when the reality is you couldn't be further from the truth, and that that persona that you create makes it difficult to ask for help. So what happened next? You had that um, that four or five months of low point. You were done a lot of thinking, a lot of reading, uh, and reassessing um, what happened in the past. Uh, where did you go next? Sure. So I decided to, the first thing I wanted to do is diversify a little. I didn't want all my eggs in one basket, so to speak. So some of what I had went into purchasing an offline company, um, which is, a, at the time, it was purchasing a small uh, share. I now own that company. I, I later on bought the, the company in its entirety. Um, part of that went into buying and what, what kind of company was that? So this is a company that handles corporate food logistics. So ultimately, it solves the problem of feeding people in mostly large organizations, but also some medium companies, medium-sized companies as well. Is it a consulting business or? It's not. No, it's a service business. So we handle everything from logistics in terms of getting food from A to B within those organizations. But we also handle the sort of logistics of uh, planning events for those organizations where they have kind of large numbers of people and they need to feed those people in, in one way or another. And do you still own that business? I certainly do. It's um, I mean, I absolutely love that business, not so much for the business, but just for the people that are there. And I think that as someone who primarily works online, having that just keeps me balanced. It gives me somewhere to actually turn up to, somewhere to go that's not just the uh, the four walls in my home office and have real people with you know real conversation and real issues. And I just I don't think I'd, I'd be here today without that. 
So what's the size of the business? Can you give us an idea, like how many people work in it's, there and all that? It's not a huge business. So at the moment, we've got around 14, 14 or 15 full-time staff, and then we take on people part-time depending on the season. So we're mostly, we focus on the Northwest. Um, and England, in terms of its geography, is very different to the U.S. In the U.S., you've got states the size of the U.K. <laughs> we're a, a very small country, so... You know, we could easily take like a, a fifth of the country without having to have too much in terms of resources. And so you you still have that business. You had that business for how many years or when did you start that? Um, well, I mean, I, I invested in that business from probably going back to 2006, but I bought the sort of remaining shares in 2009. So uh, you you had... You know, you were an investor since 2006, and then you ultimately bought the business in 2009. So why why web businesses? What 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 was your attraction to the to the to the online sphere? I've always been online, and I've never. I mean, the only reason why I bought offline is because I wanted at the time I really needed that sort of um, diversity. You know, I needed that redundancy in case. Um, something didn't work out on the online side. It was nice to know that I had something that was bricks and mortar that I could fall back on as well. Knowing what I know now with online, I probably would have just gone all online and diversified in a different way or in a smarter way, which I now know how to do. But I've just always had this this love for web, mostly because of the fact that things are so quick. So you have an idea, you can implement and test that idea overnight. You know, you really can. You don't have to wait until 9 a.m. when people start trading and people start doing things. The internet is global, so you can put an advert out there and you can see results within 30, 40 minutes. You can tweak and test and you can literally build a business at the speed of light thanks to thanks to the you know sort of the nature of the internet. Uh, so have you built some online businesses um, while uh, running your uh, corporate uh, business? Absolutely. So I mean, I, I I'd say my if one's a day job and one's a night job, then the online side of things is definitely my day job. So, I mean, before Centurica, I had uh, a number of different sites. Some were web apps, some were e-commerce, some were B2C, some were B2B. So I've covered the full range. Um, a lot of people know me for flipfilter.com, which is a SaaS tool that helps you analyze and compare businesses, online businesses for sale on various sort of platforms like uh, auctions or forums, for example. Yeah, because when I when I looked at uh, Flip Filter, I saw that you had some listings from Flippa. H- how does that work? Sure. So I mean, the idea with Flip Filter, if you imagine Flip Filter and Centurica cover two different ends of the market. Centurica covers the end of the market for people looking to buy a business. So when I say a business, I'm generally referring to something that is above 20k, under two million for our purposes, um, and you know, ultimately it generates profit and it has some element of stability in there. With FlipFilter, FlipFilter generally looks at marketplaces and forums and platforms that sell websites as opposed to complete businesses. So with websites, you've got a much bigger element of risk, but you're also paying a lot less as well. So on Flipper, you can find a website from $100. Now, whether that website is going to make you any money or not is debatable. Um, and that's the idea behind Flip Filter. It will help you kind of crunch the numbers and maybe just do a bit of analysis before getting too deep in. So what are some of those numbers that you look for um, when you look at a website or, or an online business to, to, to determine value there? 
So one of the most important things for me with an online business is looking at, I mean, with Centurica, we break it up into sections and the two main sections for me really are revenue and traffic. Because for most online businesses, that is the heartbeat of profit. You know, revenue is usually directly proportional to profit and traffic is usually directly proportional to revenue. So one of the things that I'm looking at is how dependable, how reliable and how scalable is the traffic that website currently has. So to give you an example, if you have a site that has 80% of its traffic coming from Google, in my opinion, that's a big, big red flag because although that traffic is free and it probably converts well now, you run the risk that at any point Google could change its algorithm or it could apply a penalty and this uh, website which you paid for could be almost worthless if it loses half its traffic overnight. So looking for some sort of uh, redundancy in terms of traffic or some diversity in the type of traffic that website's getting is one of the things I'll look for first and foremost. But I'll also look at things like the, the niche that it's in, the industry that it's in. Um, I'll look at the business model. There are certain business models which I, I wouldn't touch and there are certain business models which I will pay far more for than, than average. And so what are the ones that you wouldn't touch and which ones are that are attractive to you and why? So, I mean, this is just my own sort of personal criteria and it's not to say that any of this is right or wrong. But, for example, in terms of the niche, I'll always stay away from things like video games. Um, I'll stay away from adult things purely because it's just a niche I don't understand. With video games, part of the problem is it's very difficult to find a product or to find a way to monetize people. Um, simply because of the way the industry is. So to give you an example, if you have a forum about a particular video game, you've got you know a, a young gaming audience, which may seem lucrative, but when you look at what your options are for things to sell that audience, it's very, very limited. So you've, you can't really sell a video game. Um, I don't even know how that would work, but I know if you did sell a video game, your margins on that wouldn't be anywhere near as good as... Uh, you know, a, an official game reseller or someone on Amazon that's doing a, a much more volume than you. Uh, yeah, it's funny. It's funny because I interviewed someone that is a, a very successful blogger, and he had a site that did exactly what you were talking about—a video uh, game blog—and it had a ton, ton of traffic, and still he couldn't monetize it. So it's funny that you brought that up because sure. I actually heard it from from other sources as well. So what 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 are the ones that you you find attractive? I I mean I absolutely love things in what I call the red brick niches. So we're talking about education, finance, healthcare. These are the niches where they're and I know in the US you say niche, you say niches, right? <laughs> yeah, niche, niches. Say, yeah, or niche. Yeah. So I mean, these are the niches where you've got it's a mature industry, so it's been around long enough to have some stability, and you also have a lot of advertisers that generate a lot of money from the people within it. So to take education, for example, your average college tuition for a university or your average cost of a you know a vocational course is high enough that those advertisers can afford to pay a lot of money. The same goes for things like credit cards or mortgages or pensions. So while these industries generally tend to be very, very competitive because of that, you've always got this kind of big market which gives you a lot of room for growth. And providing that you're good or you've got something to differentiate yourself, you usually find that you've just got far much more scope and far much more potential in these industries than the tiny kind of niche industries like... Uh, you know, you see people setting up sites for, I'm looking at a Blue Yeti microphone now. So someone might think it's a great idea to have a site that is just about Blue Yeti microphones. 
And that's great if you're looking for a hobby site, if you're looking for something to give you a few extra dollars on the side of work. But if you're looking to build a big, big business, you're never going to do that by being niche. And I think that's the conventional bad advice that a lot of people get. Oh, really? Because uh, you hear a lot of times that you need to focus on, 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 on a niche. Uh, but you, you disagree with that? I disagree. And I mean, if just look at the, uh, I don't know if you have something similar in the US, but we have every year the Sunday Times Rich List. And it's just a, a list of like the 500 richest people in the UK. And I can guarantee you, if you go through the first 20, 30 pages of that rich list, you will not find a single person that made their money from something that was considered niche. You know, the majority of those people in there are big, big ideas, big things, things like oil or steel or property, finance. But the others, the people who are kind of more Internet or, you know, the more modern, even those people have made their money on, on big things. So you were talking about the guys who started Stripe. We're talking about the guy who did Money Supermarket, the comparison site. Nothing that you'll see in there is niche in the kind of, you know, blog about microphones kind of sense. Although they have picked a sector and they focused on that sector, that sector is always big and competitive. Um, that's those are valid points, uh, uh, no doubt about that. Uh, let's talk about um, monetization. When you look at a site, uh, what what are the most uh, most attractive monetizations that you see for for a website that you're looking at or on, on an internet business? See, I mean, I love the topic of monetization and. I think the one thing that's important to realize is that you'll never find a strategy that will work identically on so you know two or three different sites. So I can't really say that for this business this is the type of strategy you'd employ. But I think the one thing that you can do is I mean Flip Filter or even Flipper if you want to go sort of direct and look at what's been auctioned is a really great source of ideas because assuming that you have a similar audience to another site you can find a site that's currently for sale. So say, for example, you did have this uh, niche site on microphones. You can go to Flipville to do a search for microphones, find a microphone site that's for sale, and you can have a look at what monetization methods they have in play at the moment. And you can see, for example, that maybe you've got one that might um, use email marketing predominantly once they've got people signed up, and they might sell microphones through an affiliate program. You can always look and you can see for every visitor that hits their site, what are they making on average? What is their revenue per user? And compare that across different sites. So then you can look at the one with the highest RPU, look at what their monetization strategy is, and assume that that's probably a good place to start. So I think while there's no kind of general formula or there's no good or bad monetization, because it does depend on your visitors and their intent when they get to your site, I think you can find out various strategies fairly easy. There's a site called monetizationlab.net, monetization spelt with a Z, um, that gives you around 30 or 40 different monetization strategies and ranks them and rates them based on the, the business model and the niche that you're in. So I think that's a good resource to get started. So um, how, do you, how do you market your, your businesses? You know, I'm talking about Flipfilter, uh, Centurica. What, what is the most effective for you today, this year? I wish I could say I've found the answer, but I mean, it's it's constantly ongoing. And I think people have coined this growth hacking when really it's something that a lot of people have been doing for a very long time, which is trying out different sources of customer acquisition, seeing what works. So I mean, for Centurica, one of the things that has worked for us best is just being out there in the community. So it's, you know, doing guest posts on blogs, helping people out when they've got a question, 
putting up presentations that are useful. Probably the best thing that we've ever done on there is the website buyer's report, which is a 34, 36 page report, which kind of details, I think over 800 transactions from the last year and gives you an idea of what you'd expect to pay, averages, medians, and what valuations across different categories generally are. So that's originally a, a form of lead capture, but it also helps us get the word out there about what we do. And that's probably our best source of customer acquisition because it's a, a good, high-quality, well-produced report, um, although it's free. I think one thing as well that's recently worked for me is using Twitter. Um, that's something that's completely new and I know nothing about, but I've noticed the CPAs using Twitter lead cards are, are insane. So that's something I'll definitely be exploring more as the year goes on. Yeah, I, I I hear that so much. I, I love Twitter for the networking aspect of it. I mean, you can use it for so many things, but it, it is definitely my favorite uh, social platform as well. I think Twitter probably works best for B2B. I mean, I wouldn't really use Twitter for B2C stuff yet. Uh, for B2C, I'm loving Facebook, especially for e-commerce, because I think you know if you're selling through AdWords right now, then I can guarantee if you set up something like Perfect Audience or AdRoll, um, alongside Facebook, you will always, always get a lower CPA through Facebook and it just expands your reach uh, by so much, so cheaply. So that's probably my favorite for B2C stuff. So you um, recently published a book called Digitally Wed, the Entrepreneur's Toolkit for Buying Profitable Websites. Um, what was the reason for writing this book? It's kind of been a bucket list thing, you know. It, I mean, it definitely wasn't financially motivated. Um, anyone that thinks they'll make money by selling a book is sorely disappointed. This book was a real labor of love, so it was kind of two years in writing it, and I did the sort of design and the artwork myself, so that was another maybe three months. So, it, you know, it really was a kind of bucket list thing. It's, I've always wanted to write a book, but more importantly, I had all of this knowledge that I've accumulated over the years from making a lot of expensive mistakes. And realistically, I could only sort of reach so many people through Centurica. I wanted to be able to share that knowledge and almost kind of open source the process, you know, kind of put out there the way I do things and what my processes are, why they work for me, and just allow people to comment on that. And it's been great because so many people have emailed me, people from really diverse backgrounds, from legal, from financial backgrounds, from investment backgrounds, and they've kind of chimed in and told me places where they think things that I've got in there could be done better or could be more optimized and it it is sort of a, a real open source process so it's yeah it's been a more of a book of collaboration than anything else can you maybe we want people to 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 read the book obviously but can you talk about maybe one point in the book that that you think is very important or you think maybe is the most important thing or or that people people should know it depends on who you are and where you are on your journey. I mean, I literally give away some of the best chapters for free. You can get one of four chapters for free if you, you head to the site. And the one I'd recommend that if people are like myself would enjoy is probably the one on strategy. So the chapter on strategy is all about what situations would you pay slightly over the odds for a site and what kind of acquisitions you should be looking for. But in the same respects, even if you're not actively buying, you can look at this as, you know, how could I structure my site or how could I set my business up um, to inherently build a value that's going to be worth far more than other businesses in the same category. 
So the uh, the chapter about sort of strategic acquisitions looks at things like month on month growth. It looks at things like um, increasing recurring revenue. It looks at virality. It looks at various different things that are, are just brilliant things to have built into a business, whether you're buying it or whether you own that business yourself. If people want to uh, read your book, where should they go? And if somebody has a question for you, how would they contact you? Sure. So I'd advise everyone to head over to exitplan.co. Have a look at the sample chapters, read the free information. Even if you're not convinced, there's a full money-back guarantee on there. If you're not happy with the book, send me an email. Money's yours. So far, I've had no one take me up on that offer. Fortunately, fingers crossed, and I hope it will continue that way. In terms of getting a hold of me, you can get hold of me through the site, through exitplan.co. Um, I'm also on Twitter, which is forward slash flip filter. Or if you Google Justin Gilchrist, Google Plus, you'll find me on there too. Well, Justin, thank you very much for coming on Success Harbor today to talk about your, your business experience, and I wish you much success with, uh, with your book and Centurica as well. Anytime, George. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Bye.